Well, last Sunday, we started a series called Your Ten Greatest Challenges, and this was a study, obviously, from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus 20. But these commandments really reveal God's character and his values. And when God gave these commandments to Moses and the Israelites, it would also establish the framework for our relationship with him and with others. So last week, we, we took some time to look at the first commandment, which said, you shall have no other gods before me. And we said that our first great challenge is with God. And that challenge is to let God be God. To let God be God. You see, God is who he is. We can't make him into something that we want him to be. He's not some designer God fashioned after our own desires and our own wants. Uh, he is God. He is but we also need to remember that, yes, he is God, but that God is also good. He is good. In our family devotions this week at our house, we were reading from 1 John 5. And in verse 3, it says, in fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. So we, one way we demonstrate our love to God is by obeying him. But then it says, and his commands are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. And so God is God and we obey him because creation does what what its creator wants, what the creator wants. But, but God's not putting these commands on us as a burden. He's actually giving them out of love, out of his goodness. So his commands are not a burden, but he gives them because he's looking out for our best. It's like why a parent lays down rules for their kids. It's not to ruin their fun. It's not to ruin their lives, even though they think it is. But it's to provide them a framework for what is best for them. So our challenge is to let God be God and make sure that he is in his rightful place in our lives. As number one, as king, as ruler of our lives. We're called to embrace him unconditionally. No ifs, no buts, no whens. He said, no other gods before me because he alone is the one who deserves the single seat of honor and glory in our lives. So today we want to look at the, the second commandment. And think about our, our second great challenge. So if the first challenge was a challenge with God, this then is a challenge with worship. And it's the challenge is to truly worship him, to truly worship him. So let's look at Exodus chapter 20 and read the first commandment again. And then we'll look at the second commandment. The first commandment says, and, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And that's, now let's read the second commandment and let's read it together. It'll be up on the screen. Verses four through six. It says, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So after laying down the first commandment to have no other gods before me, it's no surprise that this commandment follows to not make or bow down to any graven images. Now the Israelites would have been very familiar with images and idols after spending such a long time in Egypt. The Egyptian people were some of the most religious people of any ancient culture. They had a multitude of gods and an idol for each one of those gods. They worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. They worshipped animals. They even worshipped Pharaoh himself. And to worship these gods 
meant bowing down to and in front of an image of that God or an idol. The idol itself then became this sacred thing to them. But what about us? Like, could we create an image or an idol to worship the one true God? Like, is that allowed today? Is there any problem with that? Well, here's the problem. There is no image or idol that could ever do God justice. As much as we would try to, to, to articulate God in some type of image, we can't do it. It can't come close to revealing who God really is. And any image that seeks to represent God will be so far less than who he really is that it might actually begin to distract us from God himself instead of drawing us closer to him. I mean, think about all of the portrayals of God in film over the years. Here's just a few. This is uh, one image that we have from the, the movie, The Ten Commandments. And it was, God was voiced by Charlton Heston. Then here we have from the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the voice of Graham Chapman. I don't know, is that what God looks like? <laughs> right? uh, another one, this is George Burns in the movie Oh God. The Simpsons, of course, portrayed God and, and it was voiced by Harry Shearer and, and Phil Hartman. And then, I don't know if you guys knew this, but Alanis, Alanis Morissette uh, was God in the movie Dogma after she swallowed a jagged little pill. And then we have... Uh, an image of God in South Park. A little bit irreverent, don't you think? But this was voiced by uh, a guy named Trey Parker. Then you have Whoopi Goldberg, who played God in It's a Very Merry Muppet Christmas. But she also portrayed God in a movie called A Little Bit of Heaven. And then you have Morgan Freeman, who portrayed God in Bruce Almighty and Evan Almighty. And, and I, I gotta say, I kind of wonder, though, if God's voice does sound like Morgan Freeman. And that's like an angelic voice of some sort, at least. Right? Then you have Octavia Spencer playing God in The Shack. And then you have Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory playing uh, on a, the Broadway show, An Act of God, He Played God. So let me ask, how, how well do you think these portrayals of God are in giving us an accurate depiction of who God really is? Like even the more reverent ones, those that tried to stay true to the Bible, they, they fall short in some way of giving us a full representation of who God is. And, and I'm not trying to knock their attempts, although some of the, those attempts do need knocked. But I'm not trying to knock their attempts. What I'm really trying to do is I'm trying to show you or elevate the holiness and awesomeness of our God. That, that we, can't, we can't encapsulate it in an image or in an idol. And we could go on and on about the depictions that we have of Jesus, right? I mean, how many times have we seen a rendering of Jesus as this very white, blondish, brownish-haired, blue-eyed, smooth-skinned hair model with flowing locks, right? I mean, these, these pictures make it look like Jesus is doing an advertisement for Dove's Men's Shampoo or something like that. I don't, I don't really know my shampoos, obviously, so maybe there's a better one. Anyway, again, I'm not trying to knock these interpretations, I just wonder if, if we're not careful, do they distract us? And there are many people and there are many Christian groups today who use certain objects or pictures to represent God. These could include using a rosary or a cross necklace or other piece of jewelry, a picture of Jesus or what someone thinks Jesus might look like, a picture or a piece of jewelry depicting some other dead or living saint. 
When I was younger, when I was a teenager, I was driving and I'd had some type of car trouble and I don't remember exactly what it was, but I must have mentioned it to my neighbor. My neighbor was just this wonderful lady, very devout Catholic woman. And so she found out I'd had this car trouble. And so she gave me this little um, picture of St. Christopher, who's the patron saint of, of travelers. Well, I loved my neighbor she was like a grandma to me, and so I didn't want to offend her, and not that I, you know, thought that this patron saint was looking after me, but I, I, I took this little picture, it was a little round picture with some ornate, uh, like, yarn or something around it, and I stuck it in my wallet for a while until I realized that this circular object was making an indentation in my wallet that looked a whole lot like a condom, and so... <laughs> I thought, this is probably not what my very devout uh, anti-birth control neighbor was going for when she gave me this, so I stopped carrying it around. But anyway, certain people or some people will carry around or use these religious icons in their worship. And people would even go on, will go on pilgrimages to ancient places, worship at places like the, the Sistine Chapel or certain places where the Apostle Paul walked or where Jesus walked. And, and I would love to go to some of these places too, but it's become a very spiritual event for them. You know, several years back, I was in New York City and, and I walked through St. Patrick's Cathedral there. And I just remember walking in and there was just this feeling of reverence and awe at this ornate architecture and somber lighting. So again, this commandment states, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. So this commandment was, was never meant to stifle artistic talent, okay? I'm not trying to say that the things that I've mentioned are horrible things or sinful things. I mean, all you have to do is, is, is look to the instructions that God gave the Israelites in the building of the tabernacle and the ornate detail he prescribed. And in it, you see that making representations is not absolutely forbidden. I mean, we just celebrated an, an, an image, a representation in communion that, that, that Jesus prescribed. What I'm saying is that none of these things, none of it are, 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 are made with the intention to worship them, or are supposed to be made with the intention to worship them. That we are to avoid improper substitutes that would steal away our hearts from the true worship of God. So I want to pause for just a minute and kind of let you in on some of the thoughts that I've had recently, which is kind of a scary thing to think about that you're going to get into my mind for a moment. But this is, this is not meant to be political one way or another. But again, these are just kind of some thoughts that I've had uh, for a little while and, and some questions that they've made me think about. So re- recently, there's been a lot of debate in our country about statues, right? The, the character of those people that the statues were made to honor. Some people, they want to tear down the statues, maybe because the, the people that they were built for, uh, maybe they owned slaves or they did something awful. Uh, others want these statues to remain, and, and that's not the debate I want to get into. Uh, but it's just made me think a lot. It's made me think a lot about this commandment that we have, even before we started developing this series. And I started thinking, you know, any statue that we would make of somebody, people will be able to find a flaw in, that, in, in the statue because of who it represents. Because we're all sinful humans. And so if you tear down that statue, which again, I don't care if you do or not, just 
do it legally. But if you tear it down and you replace it with somebody else, guess what? That person you replace it with, you're going to be able to find a fault in them too. Because we're all sinful. Eventually, we're going we're gonna to find out something wrong with that person. So I'm not taking sides here on this debate. Have a statue, don't have a statue. I could, I could honestly care less. But to me, this is just a continual reminder that any image we make will always be a cheap substitute. And though these statues were never erected with the intent to worship them, there's probably been more worship of these icons than we care to admit. And yet, the only one who could stand the test if we were to make an image of them, a statue of him, commands us not to make an image. Why? Because again, we're human. We are sinful. And any depiction would fall short of capturing the glory of God. So another cool thought as I'm rambling through some of these thoughts. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it talks of how God made man in his own image. The Hebrew phrase, Teselem Elohim, means image of God. And yet this God who said, you shall not make any graven images, actually made one himself. Humanity. We are one way that people know what God is like. The way to get a glimpse of what God is like is by looking at his image. And so that kind of carries with it a huge responsibility, doesn't it? That we are representatives of him. We are his ambassadors. But it's also a tremendous honor. We are made in his image. So just some musings I've been having lately. Uh, so before you're tempted to tune me out, or maybe you did because I brought up statues and you're like, I don't want to hear it anymore. Before you tune me out, just because you think that this commandment doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with you, because you've never made or you've bowed down to any idols, let's, let's try and think this through a little bit more. In Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul points out the problems that we have with images, idols, and, and this challenge to worship. He, he writes this in verse 21. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave, him, gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Doesn't that sound like the culture we live in right now? A lot of futile thinking, a lot of darkened hearts. Although they claim to be wise, we have a lot of people who are talking and they sound like they're very wise. Although they claim to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. What a terrible exchange that they made. Images for God. But do we do this today? Do we have Images, icons, idols that we metaphorically bow down and worship today. The challenge of our worship is one of the greatest challenges of our lives to truly love and worship God for who he is, as he is. You remember last week when we looked at Psalm 86, talked about no one or no thing compares to God, not even his own creation. And this is why idolatry, which is really what we're talking about today, this is why idolatry is forbidden by him. 
the fifth century church leader, Augustine, he gave this great definition of idolatry. I like it. He said this. He said, idolatry is worshiping what should be used or using what should be worshiped. It's worshiping what should be used or using what should be worshiped. Worshiping what should be used. Like we should be using money, for instance. We should be using money for the glory of God. We should be using money to help others rather than worshiping it. But I would say that's a pretty big idol in our world today, isn't it? We should be using our jobs to advance God's kingdom. Our job should not be our primary pursuit. We shouldn't be using God so we can have health and wealth, fame and fortune. He is the object of our worship, not some genie who grants us what we desire, grants our wishes. So idolatry is worshiping what should be used and using what should be worshiped. In the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, he provides us more insight into this understanding of our, our tendency toward idolatry. And he does it by using five phrases. The phrases are my shoes, my dog, my wife, my country, my God. My shoes, my dog, my wife, my country, my dog. And what he's saying is these five phrases span the spectrum from ownership to worship. So we can say, I love my shoes, I love my dog, I love my wife, I love my country, I love my God. Our English language is pretty strange, isn't it? I mean, we use the same word to describe how we feel about ice cream and our children with the same word, right? I love my ice cream and I love my children. But they're describing vastly different feelings, aren't they? I mean, if you know me, I really, really do love ice cream a lot, probably too much. But it's not the same love I have for my children. I mean, most days, depending on how they're doing. But I'm kidding. <laughs> so these phrases that C.S. Lewis used, they, they take us from ownership, my shoes, to worship my God. From something we use to the one that we worship, to the one who alone deserves our worship. What Lewis is pointing out is that if we're not careful, we start to blur the lines. And we put God, who is to be worshipped, right there on the same level with those things that we simply own or use, or we worship something less than God. For instance, I just bought a brand new pair of running shoes, and I might say, I love my shoes. There's some Adidas Ultra Boost. They're great for running. I love my shoes. They fit me so well. I choose the shoes that I love because they appeal to me. They fit my style. And they're comfortable for me to wear. They exist entirely for my comfort, for my use, and for my pleasure. But if I ever see a better pair of shoes, or if they ever cause me any pain, I will feel complete freedom to get rid of them and get another pair. And that's fine. But we start to run into some problems when we use that same logic up the scale. What if we put my wife in the same category as my shoes? said, I love my wife. She fits me so well. I choose my wife because she appeals to me. She fits my style and she's comfortable for me to be around. In fact, she exists entirely for my comfort, my use, and my pleasure. But if I ever find, see a better wife, or if she ever causes me any pain, I'll feel complete freedom to get rid of her and find a new wife. That, that, that illustration kind of made me sick to my stomach and I couldn't even look over here, right? Because I wanted to kick my own butt for saying that, right? But isn't that what happens with so many marriages? Why so many marriages are in trouble today? 
Far too many people treat their marriage partner like he or she is something to be owned and used for our own comfort or our own image. And we can insert country in there or we can go back to the dog. We don't own our country, I realize, but we absolutely aren't supposed to worship our country. We kind of have that with a lot of people. I've seen a lot of people have a worship of their spouse, right? So C.S. Lewis's point, of course, is that too often we treat God this way as well. I love my God. He fits me so well. I choose my God because he appeals to me. He fits my style and he's, he's comfortable for me to be around. In fact, he exists entirely for my comfort, my use, and my pleasure. But if I ever see a better God, or if he causes me any pain, I'll feel complete freedom to get rid of him and get a new God. Again, Augustine says, idolatry is worshiping what should be used or using what should be worshiped. Anything that we use can become an idol. So going back to money becoming an idol, think about how some people worship money. And so we counsel young people, especially as they're getting started on their own, making their own, we counsel them to use money and love people and don't ever get those two things backwards. So our challenge to worship God is to challenge him, is to worship him as he truly deserves. Idolatry attempts to place God under my control. Worship places me under his control. Idolatry attempts to place God under my control. But worship places me under his control. So why is it that God is so serious about idolatry? Even in our day when we're not crafting these statues and bowing down and worshiping. Let me, let me give you two reasons. The first is that idols are offensive to God. Idols are offensive to God. They are deeply insulting to God. Look again at what he says in verse 5 of Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You remember last week when we talked about the name of God? We said that God gave his name to Moses. We said it was the term Yahweh. Yahweh. His name meant I am who I am. And we said in our English Bibles that whenever this, this name for God is used, it's translated as Lord, but it's in all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And that's where it is in this verse as well. This is Yahweh God. So we could read this verse like this. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am who I am, a jealous God. Loving and worshiping God means loving him just as he is. Anything else is insulting and highly offensive to him. We cannot shape God into our mold. It's interesting though that that God speaking here calls himself a jealous God. Now that term jealous is is often misunderstood because we we see it in human terms. This, This is not God being naturally suspicious or distrustful or even wrongfully envious of the success of others. That's human jealousy. But when jealous is used in scripture to describe God as an attribute of God, it means that he demands exclusive devotion. That there is an attitude of anger directed against anyone who would oppose him, all who would oppose him. But it also demonstrates the energy in which he expended in vindicating his people. You remember when he started out 
This, this chapter here, he reminded the Israelites that he was the one who rescued them from slavery. So God's jealousy is not some character flaw. Okay? It is actually a really, really good thing. It indicates that he actually wants us. We, we don't deserve him, yet he wants us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants our worship. He wants our devotion. He wants our adoration. And these 10 commandments, they help us understand how we can relate to him and to others. The first four commandments talk about our vertical relationship with God. The next six talk about our horizontal relationship with people as you read them. And, and Jesus summed it up perfectly, didn't he? When he said, love God, love people. All of the law and the prophets rest on that, right? So he is, he is jealous. He is a jealous God. He's jealous when we offer up our worship to anything or anyone other than him. And rightfully so. Scripture labels idolatry as spiritual adultery. It's compared to spiritual adultery. It is offensive to him. It is betrayal to him. It is like we are cheating on him. And every form of, of substitution, neglect, contempt, both public and private, for the worship of God, it is rejected with this commandment. So, Idols are offensive to God. But secondly, idols are destructive to us. So they are offensive to God. They are destructive to us. Look at verse 5 again and then we'll read into verse 6. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is kind of a difficult passage to understand. I mean, you, you, you have to ask the question, is God saying that he's going to punish people for the sins of their parents? Is he going to punish children for the sins of the parents? And the answer is no, not in the way it sounds at least. Not in the way it's sounding. You, you can read, there's an old Jewish proverb that the ancient Jews would quote and it's, they would repeat. And it's actually quoted in Ezekiel 18.2. It says, the parents eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So kind of talking about a, a parent's sin impacting the, the children. But further in this chapter in, in Ezekiel uh, 18, God makes it clear what he's talking about. God, God makes it clear that he does not impute sin on others. Okay, your, your sin is not put on someone else. He says in verse 20, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. This is saying each person is responsible for their own actions. Right? What this also means is just because mommy and daddy were faithful does not give you a free pass. Your faith has got to be your own. This is one of the big, big things that we are trying to instill in our children at our house and in our children in this church family. That just because mommy and daddy might be faithful doesn't mean that you get a free pass. This has to be their own faith. We've got to help cultivate that, right? But the context for this passage that we're reading in Exodus 20 is that of idolatry. And so this passage says that that the sin of the parents is you know, passed down to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Well, what this means, again, in the context of idolatry is that idolatry has a way of ingraining itself in a culture, doesn't it? And so children raised in such an environment might 
are going to be tempted to keep this tradition going and practice similar idolatry, thus falling into the same pattern of disobedience. And the effect of one disobedient generation was that wickedness would take root in the next and it could take several generations to reverse. But I wanted to let you know that it is possible to reverse the curse. You know, whenever I do premarital counseling, I spend a significant amount of time discussing with these engaged couples their parents' marriages. And so your parents' marriage is, is obviously the one that you see most when you're growing up. And you learn patterns and you learn behaviors from them, both good and bad. And so these couples carry these same tendencies if they're not, not careful. These same expectations into their marriages. This is something that my wife and I, we had to dive into as we, before we got married and, and still talk about today. Her, her parents were divorced and there's a pattern that was set and we made a commitment to one another that we would reverse that. That that would not be a generational thing. That we would, not, we would not allow that to creep into our marriage. But it takes two to make that commitment. It takes a third, really, to keep that covenant together, right? And so we, we had to be very careful. But we also had to be careful about the expectations that were brought in from what we saw from our parents. Maybe how my, my parents might have argued with one another. I've got to be careful I don't do that same type of arguing with her. We, we have a tendency, don't we, to pass down the sins of our parents. That's not to say that we bear the punishment of theirs, but we, what I'm saying is we, we have that tendency if we're not careful. So although we can't blame parents for our own sin, if a father does disregard God though, oftentimes the son will too. If, if the mom treats God like, like common property to be used at her own convenience, oftentimes the daughter will too. So we've got to be careful what we are passing down to our children. But idols are destructive to us. So God is so jealous about his image. He's so jealous because he doesn't want anything or anyone to distract us from him, to get in the way of us coming to him. And that's exactly what idolatry does. And so thinking about this idea of generational punishment, again, we cannot share our guilt with anyone else. All right? Just because I sin doesn't mean my kids are going to be punished by God for, for my sin. Nor can anyone else be held responsible for our transgressions. But there is, however, one exception to this rule. And it applies to all of mankind. One man bore the sin of others and paid the penalty for them so that sinners could become completely righteous and pure in the sight of God. That man is Jesus Christ who came into the world to exchange his perfection for our sin. And he is the only image. This God who says, do not make any graven images. He is the only image that God has truly endorsed for worship. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being. He is not a cheap substitute. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. All of the glory of the Father was in Jesus. And he, no idol, no image, but he, Jesus, is worthy of our entire devotion and worship. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we think about this commandment, so often we're tempted to, to believe that we don't have idols. We don't have images. We've never made some type of statue. We've not put candles around it. We've not bowed down and worshipped it. But that's just part of the command. God, there are so many idols that are placed in front of us each and every day, vying for our attention, vying for our worship. Throughout the Old Testament, we would see that your people would come in to a, to a pagan culture, a pagan nation, and you would instruct them to go in and remove these idols, to smash them, to burn them, to get them out of the camp, to remove them. So God, I pray today that we would search our hearts and see if there are any altars built up. See if there are any idols or images that we have placed on the throne of our hearts and that we would repent of that, that we would go in, that we would dig in and we would remove those idols, that we would smash them, that we would burn them, that we would remove them from this house. that you would be placed back where you belong, back where you deserve as king and ruler of our lives, as Lord over all creation, that we would submit our entire being to you and you alone. Because God, you are worth it. You are worthy of that seat. You are worthy of our all. So God, forgive us when we have built up these idols we have worshipped them. Forgive us when we have put anything in the way that would distract us from truly worshipping you and exalting you. Thank you that, that we are able to know you. That you have made yourself known by giving us an incredible image. Your son. By knowing him, we know you. By understanding his character, we understand your character. By knowing his heart, we know your heart. And your heart is obviously for us because we know what Jesus did for us. Taking our sins upon himself, he went to the cross and took our sin upon himself. Our sins were put on him. Our sins were imputed on him. And in return, the most unfair exchange happened in all of human history. Your righteousness was imputed on us. And we thank you for that great exchange. Help us to understand again that you are the only one worth worshiping. There are to be no idols. There are to be no gods before you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the work that Jesus has done. But there, if there are any idols in your life, we want to we challenge you to repent of that and to turn to Jesus. If you've never trusted in him as Lord and Savior, if you've never placed your faith in him, repented of your sin and followed through with baptism, we want to give you an opportunity to do that today. And so I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this last song. So if you have a decision to make about Jesus or you just need prayer, uh, I would love to walk you through that step and pray with you while we sing this last song. I'll, I'll wear my mask 
um, or, or you can meet me after the service. Um, but we, we, we want to offer this time to respond. So we stand and sing with us.